Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vicini. Today on the show, we came into today with a plan. We came into today with a goal. We were going to talk about the Toronto Raptors. I previewed that on the last show that we recorded on this channel and podcast feed. I said, hey, I don't think anybody covers the Raptors better than Samson Folk. I think he's the best in the business in Toronto. We're going to talk about the Raptors. We're going to do all this fun stuff. Hey, that's still the plan. We're still going to talk a whole lot about the Raptors. But hey, Jonathan Kaminga just sort of decided to set the Warriors on fire in Alik Deshabs. So I feel like I have to talk about that at the top because what in the world uh, was that? So Samson Folk is still here. We are definitely going to talk about the Raptors, guys. I promise you uh, we're not putting the Raptors on the back burner. They're going to get 30, 40, God knows how many minutes of coverage on this show. But we got to talk about this Jonathan Kaminga deal. Samson Folk is in the building. What's going on, buddy? Not too much. Just trying to get acquainted with the new Raptors era, the IQ era, the IQ plus Scotty era, probably the Scotty era above all things. But uh, roster balance is really important. Uh, the Raptors have had like really intriguing, fantastic wings, and they haven't been able to turn that into wins. And it looks like they might have a more viable path to doing so now. That's all exciting. And I'm happier in my current job than Jonathan Kaminga is apparently. So yeah, Jonathan Kaminga. So let's, let's talk about this. So the Warriors last night, they lose in pretty crushing fashion. They're up with like six minutes left in the game. And the Nuggets go on this furious comeback ending in a Nikola Jokic. How would I describe this? running fadeaway 37 footer that he banks in off the glass. So just normal Nikola Jokic stuff, basically he drills this shot and it seems like just all hell breaks loose. Jonathan Kaminga is the big piece of this. So Kaminga goes for 16 in the first 18 minutes that he played. He played his normal 18-minute rotation up until the six-minute mark of the third quarter. Steve Kerr pulls him out after an and-one bucket to get to his 16 points. Kerr, at the time, so at the time of that, the Warriors are down 85 to 84. Kerr does not bring Jonathan Kaminga back. Because typically his rotation at that point would be to come back at like the five or six minute mark of the fourth quarter. Well, the Warriors are winning by 18 points at that time in the game. So Steve Kerr is like, well, we've got it rolling. Wiggins has it rolling. We're not going to bring him back. Problem is, it fucked up. 
because they lost and went on a terrible run. And now Jonathan Kaminga has, uh, or at least Jonathan Kaminga, like the people around Jonathan Kaminga, whoever Shams's sources are in this. Someone named sources. Yeah. Somebody named sources here uh, has gone to Shams. So per an article on The Athletic, what a great website uh, from Shams Sharani and Anthony Slater. After sitting the final 18 minutes of Thursday night's loss to the Denver Nuggets, Dalton State Warriors forward Jonathan Kaminga has lost faith in coach Steve Kerr and the 2021 lottery pick no longer believes Steve Kerr will allow him to reach his full potential. Sources close to Kaminga tell The Athletic, adding another layer of turbulence to an already complex Warriors season. Uh, per one of those sources, Thursday night, was the straw that broke the camel's back. Okay, so this is a complicated deal, and I have like a lot of thoughts on this. I will just kind of give you the floor first. What When you saw this, like, what was your reaction? I think that it's been very interesting because it's like this is the the melting pot of all of the difficult things about the, the Warriors over the past few years. It's something that amazingly was still like a point of consternation or like a stress or tension point. They still won a championship doing so yeah. like multiple timelines, all that kind of stuff. And it seems that, you know, Kerr and the front office and all this kind of stuff, they're trying to maintain like the old guard, you know, appease them, even placate to some degree, right. At the cost of minutes and development, you know, potentially of the younger guys who seems like they can play. And it's not super easy to toe that line. Like, I don't think Kerr is in an easy position at all because you, if you do want to move off of Wiggins or it's Kevon Looney or whoever else is playing like a bunch of minutes and maybe needs to play less and there's other people who need to play more, you're like devaluing the ability to move on from them in the future. And they have the big contracts and like there's a whole bunch of roster construction considerations here. And I don't really know how they tell it, but I do think Jonathan Kaminga is right that these decisions, he's paying the price for them. So are the Warriors for the record, but not playing the guys who seem like have an easier path to impact, not playing guys who seem like they have an easier path to, you know, development if they do play. And Kaminga, who I've liked for a really long time and I think is a really unique play style next to a bunch of shooters, especially with that explosive athleticism, being able to shade with his movement. He opens up some vertical paths to the rim and stuff like that. And also on a a Warriors team that the reason why Wiggins was such a big deal is like, if you stunted against the Warriors, maybe they wouldn't drive it all the way. And it's like Kuminga is a guy, he'll test the stunt. He'll break the back line of the defense. And that's a super important aspect of like offense is don't let guys stunt all the time. Test the stunt. He's like a really interesting inflection point of everything that's going on dramatically with the Warriors right now. I stand with Jonathan, even even if I think it's a bit odd that he went right after the game. It's it's crazy. Like, that's the piece of this that's absolutely fucking crazy. This dude, they lose by 18, or they lose after being up 18. And not 24 hours later, there's an article in the publication that I work for saying, hey, man, I got no faith in this coach. 
That's crazy. That's crazy. So I agree with you on your point about like creating rim pressure, particularly off of stunts, forcing teams into very uncomfortable situations, particularly in regard to having to guard more area on the court essentially is the issue. I think that where Steve Kerr struggles with Kaminga is the decision-making once he gets into the paint, right? Like Steve Kerr is very much an unselfish uh, pass first kind of coach who wants guys to make the right decision. And I'm not saying Kaminga is like a bad decision maker. He's just not a great passer yet to this point. He is a really good finisher. Uh, He can finish around the basket at a really high level for a wing. The problem is I think that Kerr gets a little bit frustrated from time to time with what decision-making is. Kaminga brings a lot of energy and athleticism on defense. He, you know, will not always be in the right spot because he's so young. He's what still 21, I think. Right. Uh, Yeah. Just turned 21 in October. So I think that that piece of it creates a lot of tension. I also think that, he's at this fascinating intersection of differing priorities across the NBA on the player side and on the team side and on the uh, younger player side to the veteran side, right? That that's like a critical, critical part of this. And part of this is brought on by what the Warriors have chosen to do over this little run, drafting guys like James Wiseman, Moses Moody, Jonathan Kaminga, Brandon Pajemski, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And not using those picks to try and accentuate the quote-unquote dynasty, whatever you want to call it, that they had. It's going to, as you said, create natural tension between the rookies and the vets in some way. And I'm sure that some guys get past that. I'm sure that some guys move on. I'm not saying specifically in a lot of cases, but what I will say is like over the summer, there was like quite a bit of reporting, you know, part of it out of Draymond's mouth talking about how Jonathan Kuminga in like Draymond green, for instance, did not really have any relationship. Like Monty pool went on the radio in San Francisco and said like, Jonathan Kaminga and Draymond Green like don't have a relationship. Uh, Draymond Green like talked about like how it was not the easiest thing in the world for him as like a vet to try and like get to some of these kids. And like, you know, I think he brought up Kaminga like specifically when he went on Paul George's show. So that's where I think this becomes even more interesting because how much of this is on Jonathan, you know, potentially entering having expectations, top seven pick guy that was a top three recruit in his recruiting class has been told he's going to be an NBA star for many, many years. How much of this is on Steve Kerr, who I think has mismanaged the young players on this roster to be completely transparent. I think he should be getting more minutes for Moses Moody. I think he should be getting more minutes consistently for Kaminga. I think he should have been doing that the last couple of years, uh, finding ways to get those guys on the court in some way. And I, I think that Bob Myers deserves a decent amount of not not question here because he brought them what four titles, but I think that trying to in the Lakers on some level because the Lakers were very vocal about this, trying to squ- like hit the middle of this all where they were trying to 
set themselves up for the future as well as have these veterans that are clinging on to the past and what they were able to accomplish. That decision to cling on to the past brought them a title again, right? So you can't sit here and say it was a bad plan by any stretch of the imagination. But I think that you can question the efficacy of trying to hit this middle ground because it's really fucking hard to hit the middle ground. Well, totally. I don't know how many teams have been able to do it. Like Steve Kerr, like comes a little bit from like that Spurs, Greg Popovich, like background. I wonder if he saw like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, they directly went into like the Kawhi Leonard, you know, era to transition out of the Tim Duncan, Manu Ginobili, uh, Tony Parker era. And that was set up to be fine. And, Till they like fucked up whatever they fucked up like with his injury situation so i say all this to say like there are so few examples of this working throughout history being able to hit that middle ground and i think it's like a little bit of a hubristic decision to try and hit it because on another level i actually really agree with you on your point of like standing with jonathan kaminga on this because if i was jonathan kaminga i'd be fucking pissed I have I'm I'm extension eligible this summer. Yes. I'm a top seven pick just two years ago or whatever. I've played well this year. I'm trying to get paid. Those priorities are a really important factor to players. I'd be furious if I was Jonathan Kaminga. I get it. I think he is completely reasonable in his frustration. I think it's fucking crazy to go to Shams like a day Shams and Slater. I have have a question. (laughs) Do you think that this happens like more often and that because like if I got a message from a player like that after a game, I probably am working on like reporting a wider story or something like that. Like my my position in media would be different and it would create a different set of actions for me. Whereas if you go to Sham, Sham, sorry, he's like, it's immediately it's coming out. You know, it's like. Is there any responsibility you think on Shams to like vet this stuff, wait it out, or just like, oh, uh, it's out there? I, I would bet you, uh, knowing Shams, I would bet you he vetted this pretty strong. Oh, sorry, sorry I don't the, mean, I don't mean the fact vet. that, yeah, yeah. but but particularly the fact that Slater is also bylined on the story. Um, Slater is as connected sure. with that Golden State situation as anybody. There's, yeah, like I, I totally get what you're saying in terms of like. Should it be like a deeper dive? Why is Jonathan Kaminga upset, et cetera, et cetera? Um, I think this one, you can do the news first, which is that Jonathan Kaminga is upset. Get that out. And then like if Slater wants to do the deep dive on it and like sure. do exactly what you're saying, like that's where you can do that basically. Yeah. Um, but like, look, I don't really get into those worlds because like I don't love doing it. So like yeah, you, I'm you not... and I don't don't uh, we our job despite being like the same is different. Yeah. 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 No, it is. Um okay. So any thoughts on what I said beyond that though? Yeah. Just to hammer it home, it's I like Draymond can say he has he's having a tough time extending all of branches, but you're the guy who's made 150 million dollars. You know that when a guy comes into the league, I understand players want to win. 
evident ev- like evidenced by how much they work on their craft their improvement over time like players work like crazy nowadays um they want to get the bag though assure like generational wealth for your family yourself and everything else and Kuminga if he feels like he's kind of being jerked around frustration obviously because it's it's money it's tangible loss of wealth over like an X amount of years time when the coach is like doing this kind of stuff. And he doesn't even get to like, Kerr doesn't even get to appeal to we're winning. That's, that's the thing. Like there, what higher ideal are you serving and what higher ideal are you sacrificing for? If you're Kuminga, if the team's losing all the same and you're losing minutes to people who they've been paid, they get paid. And you think like, respectably, you think, I can provide more impact and this can more tangibly affect my career earnings going forward. And this is my job. All of those things intersecting put me on the side of like, I understand why Kaminga says this. And I understand why Moses Moody is frustrated. I understand why there's been frustration from like a myriad of players when it comes to the Warriors. Yeah. Like Moses Moody, by the way, earlier today, like Jason Dumas reported, uh, the people around Moses are frustrated with the lack of a role in consistency. He's by the way, he's the one that specifically I think should be furious, even above Kaminga. Like he's the one that falls out of the rotation every time, every single time. It seems like he's the one that gets yanked around, gets pulled around, gets, you know, thrown uh, onto the bench when they need a minute or they need to shorten the rotation or whatever. Look to me, this ends with the warriors having to make a real decision. Do we want the kids or like, you know, Steve Kerr, like I, I believe he like didn't sign an extension this summer. So do we decide that we want to retain Steve Kerr into the long term and move on that way? Or, you're hitting a breaking point with these two eras. Totally. I would bet you that just given that Stephen Curry still exists and is still unbelievable at basketball. I would bet you that the end result here is that they probably choose Stephen Curry and choose the old guard. Cause that tends to be how this works. And frankly, like I think Jonathan Kaminga is a really interesting young player. I think Moses Moody is a really interesting young player. Neither of them have emerged into like star players yeah well, that's that's either. the thing too is that like when we talked about Kawhi, Kawhi made that evident the the, yeah. the spurs didn't have to be like thoughtful or mindful about their pivot Kawhi showed up and won a finals mvp and they said "Ooh, this is like super opportunistic and they didn't go out of their way to position like a younger timeline they just kept going along and yeah. like this is the thing about development too and like all that kind of stuff the Raptors were like this to some degree too, is the Raptors, everybody said that that organization developed Fred Van Vliet and Pascal Siakam and OG Ananobi and all these late first rounders and undrafted guys and second rounders like Norm Powell. It's like they deserve credit for putting them in roles, but the biggest thing is identifying them as guys who had latent talent to become that. Like if, you don't draft Pascal Siakam if you draft like Scalabissier instead of Pascal, right? It doesn't matter how good your organization is at development. He's not going to be a two-time All-NBA player. He's not going to get a max contract, most likely. 
and yeah. the Warriors being like, we're super mindful about these two timelines. It doesn't matter if you're mindful about it or like you're approaching it from this high level aspect. Like, okay, we can plan it out this way. You got to get the guys who make that an easy transition, who make that palatable. And yeah. those guys haven't made it as palatable as other people have on other teams in the past. That's, yeah. I think that's my full take. Yeah. I think I'm with you on that. Uh, yeah. We'll see where this Warriors thing goes. I would bet you I'm talking about it again on Monday when we record with Bryce <laughs> Simon, uh, because this does not seem like it's going to end anytime soon. Okay, Samson, let's go to the Toronto Raptors, the team that you cover. The Toronto Raptors have already executed what I think has a chance to be the biggest trade of this deadline already when accounting for all three of the players included. Pascal Siakam is better than any of the three guys that were in this trade. We need to be like totally upfront about that. I think, I don't know about DeJounte Murray being better than all three of these guys necessarily. I think a lot of OG and Anobi, and frankly, I think a lot of Emmanuel quickly too. But I think that when you account for all three of these guys, when was the last time we saw a trade that involved three like legitimate starting quality players being traded like one for two, two for one, like et cetera, et cetera, right? It's like a challenge trade almost to rebalance both of these rosters in a fascinating way. And I talked a little bit about the Knicks on the previous podcast and a little bit about the Raptors after their first game as well. They uh, beat the Cavs in their first game. What was it? It was like 126 to 123, something like that. It was a big score. Uh, And then the second game, they beat the Grizzlies like 113-107 something in that ballpark. I didn't write the scores down for whatever reason, but they don't matter that much. They don't really matter that much. They won by like six points or so on the road in Memphis against John Morant, Jaron Jackson, Desmond Bain. Let's start base level here. The Raptors are still, as we talk 14 and 20, they're 12th in the East. Net rating is you know twenty first in the league right now. Where where do the Raptors sit for you at this point? Let's say where did the Raptors sit prior to this trade that has already been executed, and where do they sit now after this trade has been executed? the The short answer is that I didn't think they were going to make the plan prior to yeah. this, and. Oh, be, not because they're like not a talented enough team, but because they're an ill-fitting team that also wasn't getting the most out of their players because of fit. And then also because like, you know, the joke is that OG Ananobi was quiet quitting on defense. I'm sure you caught at least a couple Raptors games during December. It was palpable. Yeah. And he turned no, it I, right back on with the Knicks. Like, I wrote it on the, um in the trade thing I did. Like, Hey, look, like OG's effort has not been like particularly strong on defense recently. And I think that that was real. Yeah. And like, that's, I don't, everybody waxes and wanes in life and OG, it didn't end up mattering because, you know, he's on a different team, all that different kind of stuff. The Raptors are a little bit more behind the eight ball now than maybe they would have been if they got like the full fledged Ananobi. But I got, I got to say like, the Raptors are in a better position now. I think it's tough to imagine them jumping into like 
the top eight, but I think that they, if they keep things, and I know reporting came out today, I think from Tim Bonsamps that said that the Raptors are going to try and trade Pascal Siakam really hard, which wouldn't surprise me, but this team is definitely good enough to be in the play-in and I think win play-in games. Like they, it wouldn't surprise me if they kept this team and if they ended up in a playoff series, that wouldn't surprise me. I agree with that. I think that I, I think I am at the point where I'd be. I guess I would be a little bit surprised if they kept Siakam, given all of the reporting surrounding Siakam. Sure. But in general, I think that the balance of this roster just makes a lot more sense now. Uh, OG Ananobi, for as much as we all love to talk about his game, and I think he's a great fit in New York. I think he's mm-hmm. going to continue to be a great fit in New York. Uh, I don't mean this to like this be shit on OG and Anobi hour by any stretch of the imagination. He's limited as a shot creator in a real like palpable way. If you go and you look the thing that I am always, the thing I always look for is can you get to your spots? And then what do you do when you get to your spots? I think OG actually succeeds at getting to his spots. Uh, I think he can run ball screens. I think he understands how to use his frame to be able to physically like kind of get into that 14 to 11 foot range, something in that ballpark kind of thing. I think that he can't finish at the rim. He doesn't really have a ton of last step acceleration. Uh, Doesn't seem to me to, for whatever reason, go up through contact particularly well as a finisher. Uh, If you look at his numbers, as a finisher, this is a guy that is six foot eight with a seven foot two wingspan and a 240 pound frame. And the last two years, he finished like 53% at the basket. That's just completely insane. Like completely insane for somebody who's that big, who, when he's motivated is a very good cutter and can find his way to the basket, like in off ball situations. I just don't think he has a ton of game off the bounce as a finisher. And then on top of it, he's a much worse pull-up shooter than he is a shooter off the catch. Uh, He's been consistently in the like 38 to 43% effective field goal percentage area on pull-ups, which is just like almost a non-starter in terms of giving him real reps to be able to improve uh, that realm when he's already 26 years old. So And again, like he brings so many things to the table that are unbelievably impressive. And his defense is, I think he's the best defensive wing in the NBA when he's got it rolling and like when his effort is super high. And I think that he is a incredibly capable three point shooter. He's at 38% over the last six seasons on six attempts per game or something like that, or it's like four seasons or something. Uh, But this Raptors team really needed an infusion of offensive creation of offensive identity and whereas Ananobi I think offensively is like a hybrid three four they go out and get two guys to fix that like what are substantial problems right now for the Raptors on offense in terms of getting or were substantial problems Emmanuel quickly is like a perfect fit next to Scotty Barnes we'll talk about that momentarily and then RJ Barrett I'd look RJ is streaky. He goes through runs where he plays really well and then, you know, has games where he doesn't play as well. But 
I've loved the process of getting him involved so far. And we'll see where that kind of settles. What is your impression of how the Raptors decided to change essentially the balance of the core around Scotty Barnes? Because that's ultimately, I think, what this trade is all about. Yeah, there's there's basically like two or three inflection points. The first one is that OG Ananobi immediately goes on to the Knicks and is the best defender on the team and tangibly changes how they approach every single wing matchup for the rest of the season and if they can re-sign him into the future. He also bangs corner triples. He cuts. He dunks everything at the rim when he's able to attack in a linear sense, not with a live dribble typically, but in a linear sense. And... You know, you talked about like in the short mid range, getting to 11 to 14 feet. He also shoots 31% from there, has never shot better than 40%. So the spot he gets to most often with his own handle is one he can't convert from. So that's a dead end as far as, you know, what you can hope for. And then it's like you see that happening on the Knicks with OG and you say that's a win, especially since the Knicks want to add to this core continuing going forward. OG doesn't interrupt any star coming in or their usage. Perfect. Good. Quickly on the other end, projects to pair with Scotty wonderfully, um, gives you like heady off-ball defense as a guard, can try and grow more so into a primary initiator. And if he isn't, that's also fine because Scotty is taking big steps. If Pascal isn't there, they both have to kind of recalibrate how much they're taking. We'll see about that going forward. And then RJ, there's a play where the Raptors run a, a pick and roll the ball swings to the opposite side. He's running second side action. He has an empty side pick and roll. And RJ, despite not being as good a player as OG, what he does is he takes the, you know, changed, shifted defense, takes the empty Mm -hmm. side, puts a guy in jail, kind of rumbles and crab walks his way to the rim, hits a bank floater. And OG Ananobi just wouldn't do that with the space. And so Mm -hmm. reshuffling the, you know, the balance of each lineup, asking for different utility from each guy and hopefully RJ, a guy who has a bunch of skills, but isn't properly in his own hierarchy of decision-making doing them at the right time necessarily is, is having a lot asked of him in creation overextending himself and then underperforming from every spot on the floor. As he looks at a team that has IQ Pascal Scotty ahead of him almost at all times and will only ask creation of him on second side and in these, you know, messy, quirky transition lineups, he can try and have an eye for efficiency a little bit more. He can try and for the team, the Raptors that plays the most in transition, they have the highest frequency in the league. He can look for opportunities to kind of bounce and smash his way to the left side of the rim in pseudo transition and transition. I think that this trade shuffles both teams in a way that's complementary to both teams that's complementary to how both teams want to build into the future and i think this is one of the like true 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 win-win trades i've seen in a few years it's been i I completely agree and you look at the way both of these teams are playing since they made the deal yeah and they both just make more sense frankly like they're going to make even more sense when mitchell robinson is back by the way for the Knicks, like an OG and Anobi Mitchell Robinson combination yep. is long. They are going to take up so much space just kind of across the court in help. They're going to take up so much space in ball screen situations. Like they, they are really, really going to be difficult to deal with on the defensive end once Mitchell Robinson gets back next season. Uh, 
on the Raptors side, I want to talk about quickly because I'm glad that you kind of brought up a few of the things that I really like about quickly. He just has every single thing that I would want in a guard next to Scotty Barnes. Yes. Every single thing. And I think that this is, this is what you wait to trade OG and Anobi for, in my opinion. You don't do it for a few picks down the road. You do it for a guy that you know can help you. And you've been on this train for a long time. And, you know, I, I'm not, I'm preaching to the choir here in some respect. I, I think you said it earlier than anybody I saw it, like that you thought the Raptors were going to prioritize younger, established players that they would then have to pay as opposed to draft picks because that's just kind of the way the Raptors roll. They don't want to be in a situation where they're betting on something down the road. They want something in the hand now. And I think that tends to be their uh, way of operating. I actually don't think they could have found a better one than quickly. I really don't. Quickly's mix of great off-ball defense. I'm glad you brought that up. He's a, he's an okay on-ball defender. He's not nearly as impactful, I think, on the ball as he is in terms of his ability to uh, make the right rotations, use his length to like play in space and like cover multiple gaps at once in a really substantial way. He's exceptional with his closeout technique. There's just a lot of really really positive things he does on that end of the court. Uh, offensively he's a phenomenal scorer which is the exact kind of guard that you want next to scotty barnes but more than that the thing that is essential is his decisiveness i think he plays everything in a straight line he is going to try and get to his spots within three seconds if he can't get there it's gone we're moving the ball on we're going to find a different spot he doesn't turn the ball over and i think that oftentimes I think that his next step is being more dangerous as a passer. He's not a bad decision maker. He's not a bad like passer. I think as a live dribble passer, he's not often as dangerous on his drives. You know, doesn't really ever pass like straight with his left hand, right? He's always trying to get it back to his right jump stop, maybe find different ways uh, to impact uh, the game that way with kickouts, stump offs, everything, but he's always trying to get back to that right hand. It feels like that's where he'll take the next step. If he takes the next step, but offensively his decisiveness in, okay, if I can't get to this spot, I'm moving it. I'm getting this thing out of here. We're going to reset and we're going to go, or I'm getting to this spot. I'm knocking down a mid range jumper. I'm trying to get all the way to the rim with that little floater. I have, I'm knocking down a step back three. Once I get to my spot that way, like, that's a thing that's going to work really, really, really well in Toronto, I think. Yeah. The kind of like, you know, classic scouting thing, whether it's pro scout or prospect scout, is like guys who their approach to the game is kind of no frills and they still give you like a ton of impact and they still like score the hell out of the ball. You see that, you say, okay, this is a really good indicator. And then you look closer at like, say, the tape and you see that, you know, within that no frills approach, there's also these expansions into you know some possessions where he can like kind of meander around the court and he's not looking you know okay I'm getting downhill but he's actually trying to access the space behind himself similar to like Steph Curry or Tyrese Halliburton and you say okay this is a guy who's looking for space to unload on his jumper is this scalable even though he isn't like scaling up within the New York Knicks context we look at that package of skills that he has and we see that 
he's playing within a context that says be quick, make quick decisions. So he can do that. And he'll also have the opportunity. We saw it late against, you know, um, last game against the Grizzlies, which was clunky because I think of the unfamiliarity of it. But hang on to the ball a little bit more. Wait for your play. We're operating with you and Scotty as the primary. Like that's the primary action. We're going to that. Spread your legs a little bit. Like spread your wings. See what happens. And I just like, I think it's a very interesting fit. I think he can pare it down. He can ramp it up. He can do anything he really likes to do. And the only thing that's stopping him is stagnation as a playmaker and, you know, a little bit of limitation as a driver. But he has the potential, I think, to continue to manipulate with a live dribble and a pull-up jumper that can allow him different avenues to offense every time down the floor. I think uh, it's just like a really great... uh, Really great get. And then even, you know, they're playing the Kings tonight. If anybody in chat wants to watch that game, I think it'll rock. We also get the Raptors. There will probably be lineups where they're switching everything. And we might get to see quickly off of Fox. And you might really get to see quickly playing some really great, if this is a game you want to pay attention to off-ball defense from a guard against those Kings, there might be like a really good opportunity for that. So lots of stuff to look forward to. I think that's right. I'm really, really excited to sit down and watch that game probably tomorrow. If I'm being honest, probably won't watch it tonight. I have to do some catch up things today, but nonetheless, the last guy that we haven't, we've talked a little bit about RJ here and you particularly talked a little bit about RJ. I mentioned that the, I think the process is better for RJ. And I I thought the first game was like a really good example of that. Four shot attempts in transition, a put back attempt, I think he had two catch-and-shoot three-point attempts. I think two shots were like attacked closeouts, basically. And that gets you to what, like 9 or 10, something like that? And he took 12 shots in the game. I think he had one like pick-and-roll opportunity, one like isolation opportunity, something like that. It's the off-ball movement that made a lot more sense to me. I always thought when RJ got the ball in New York, it was kind of predictable in some respect like he was going to start in the right wing he was going to come up he was going to take a dribble handoff and try and get downhill to his left or sometimes like kind of bring him up through the middle of the action have him be like the secondary ball screen action uh on the second side of the court next to a Jalen Brunson and Emmanuel quickly who they had run second units with him often uh and try to, to like utilize him that way I like just letting him be kind of like a bully ass kicker kind of guy totally where it's just like, Hey, we're just going to let you drive into the paint and go. I I was really skeptical of this fit before I watched them play, to be honest, because I was skeptical of like the current construction of the Raptors and who knows what the construction will be moving forward if they move Siakam. But like you have Siakam there. Siakam loves to operate in that like kind of mid post area and hasn't been a three point shooter for years now at this point. Uh, Scotty is a guy that teams are starting to respect a little bit more as a shooter, but not really like they, they sometimes close out on him, sometimes don't. But if you have a guy with the ball in his hands and RJ, they're probably going to sag off of Scotty and just let RJ hit a kick out to Scotty and they'll close out late on Scotty and feel okay about it that way. And then obviously you have Pirtle as well. Who's going to be taking up some space in the middle. And so much of RJ's game was based on that, like bully drive to the paint, 
attack the rim kind of game. And then like, I thought that because the space would be so much more even condensed than it was in New York, I thought there was a chance that his decision-making tree would probably get even more fucked up. Sure. Because he's a guy that tends to go up for all these like terrible below the rim layup attempts as opposed to kicking the ball out. The thing I underestimated, I think I would say from the jump is the transition side of it and how the Raptors are going to weaponize him in transition, whereas somewhere that he can be incredibly effective immediately in a way that I think the Knicks did not always weaponize him in transition in that way. And I think that is where he probably will be quite successful. There's a really cool play where the Raptors, they kind of labored to get Scotty this post action. The defense shifts over to Scotty. RJ is positioned above the break. Same side. He cuts middle because his guy falls asleep. Good cut. I love yeah. same side cutting because I think it's a really good indicator of how a guy reads the floor. Same side cutting isn't easy. Yeah. You know, people in the chat, everybody's played pickup. How many same side cuts have you made? It's not easy to spy that space. He yeah, cuts it was middle. funny. Last night in the game, the Bucks spurs game, uh, there was a play where Vic like ran like a two man game kind of thing and then ended up kind of on the wing and then like same side cut 45 cut to the rim on I think it was Giannis or whatever and backdoored Giannis and it was just like whoa this is ridiculous this is people on the internet were like melting down like I saw Andrew Sharp and I, I love like I have no problem with Andrew Sharp I don't mean this like negatively he was like the the quality for uh, highlights has been drastically reduced by <clears throat> everyone just wanting to melt down about Victor Wembanyama. And I was like sitting there. I'm like, dude, have you seen a seven foot four guy, uh, 45 cut back door, Giannis, same side cut, understanding where the space is, understanding like where exactly that works. That's like fucking hard. That's the small stuff that gets really, really, uh, lost in the shuffle typically and i'm glad people were calling it out because that's like wildly 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 impressive to me yeah uh but any like to go back to the rj thing rj cuts middle rj has driving gravity maybe some of it is that like guys have played against rj before and big men are like i'm ready to block the hell out of this jumper but siakam times his cut up on the baseline on the opposite side same thing and rj as much as I think that he makes a lot of gaffes and errant decisions as a passer. He also has that lefty thing where lefties, every lefty can make a skip pass because they're so strong <laughs> in their left hand. They can spray the ball with that left hand anywhere they want on the floor. And this live dribble, like whoop, right across yeah. straight to Pascal for a dunk. And like also RJ has surprised a little bit with his playmaking flashes I, I talked to um, Ariel who Pacheco, who I think is a great Knicks writer about this. And he said, I think I've come to you know say that it's probably just flashes with RJ, which is fine. But you get a flash here and there. He has the physical capabilities, especially with that strong left hand to like whip the ball. And yes. for the Raptors, who are going to tilt the offense with Siakam and with Scotty so much towards the like same side post places, the ability to just like quickly, if if you're on the same side, to just like ping that thing to the other side of the floor is like a unique micro skill that he'll be able to have in, you know, Toronto, but more important than everything else is obviously like pick your spots. If the defense is shifted, RJ, if he has a wing on him, 
like you said, kick-ass bully ball, he can get, like, he'll push that guy back into the stanchion as long as the help side defense isn't totally keyed in. He doesn't need to score that much on these Raptors. You can pick your spots a little bit better when the help side isn't as engaged. Be mindful of that. The rim percentage is going to go up. Maybe there's a few easier jumpers for him on this team. I don't know. Maybe the three-point shot over time comes around, but there's a reason to be optimistic. Not for, you know, I'm not sure about all-star status or anything like that, but for like a good starter, find your spots, make it work. He's 23, you know, there's room. Yeah, like I saw a couple of reports saying like RJ had like zero value, like negative value, like nobody wanted his deal. Look, I, I frankly, like, I don't know where RJ's deal sits on the spectrum of value, sure. not valuable based on what he's shown in the NBA, like in terms of like impacting winning in New York, probably like underwater a little bit. Right. But that doesn't, change the skills that he has that could theoretically be weaponized in a different way to make it work. So I I never really bought that, that like his deal was a catastrophe or anything. Like it's the same with like Zach Levine. Like to me, it's all about like weaponizing these guys in ways that make sense for them. Levine's deal is obviously drastically bigger, but RJ Barrett like is making $25 million a year, $26 million a year. Like that's not a it's not a big deal in today's NBA. Like he's going to be up. yeah, it, it in his last 2 years I would bet you there is a chance he's outside of the top 100 in terms of like who is paid. Uh I, I'll kind of look at that and see like where the where he sits right now. I'd bet he's like 75th something like that. Now he's he is 56th right now, 55, 56, something like that. 61, sorry. Uh, I bet that as the cap goes up and more of these guys sign big deals like this, he's going to end up, you know, 75th, 85th, 95th, potentially outside of the top 100. And if you have RJ Barrett, that's below average starter money. RJ can be a below <clears throat> can be a below average starter, I think. So yeah. I'm not that worried about that. Uh, let's move to Siakam because he's the thing here, right? Yeah. Siakam, I thought started the year. I don't want to say like a little bit questionable, but like it wasn't his best start to the season. I think he's been really, really good. As of late, you look at the numbers over the course of his last, let's call them 14 games. He's averaging 26 points, six rebounds, five assists, shooting 58% from the field, 46% from three on three attempts per game, 76% from the line, uh, only averaging 1.7 turnovers in that time. This is by far the hottest shooting stretch of Siaka's career over the last four years, I would say, uh, since he kind of has that downturn uh, in shooting for whatever reason. A team that would be trading for Siakam is trading for a genuine like borderline all NBA player. And for whatever reason that gets lost. I don't understand what it is about Pascal Siakam that people do not value, do not understand. Siakam is a great offensive player who's averaging in his last 14 games, 26, six and five, 
not turning the ball over, efficient as a scorer, and is a good defender. Like I thought that, especially early in the season, actually, his level defensively was better than what we'd seen over the course of like the last year and a half, realistically. Why don't people give Siakam, in your opinion, the credit that he deserves? I think that there is something, you know, there's an aesthetic bias always. People have a tough time crediting play styles that they haven't seen emulated by stars prior. It's why everyone is like, really, if someone plays like Kobe or mirrors Kobe, people are very ready to crown them. Jordan Clarkson has had like a great career, but people thought that he was going to be like an all-star because he was doing things like Kobe on the Lakers. And it's because aesthetically, they're like, this looks like something I've seen before. And Pascal, truly, if you look at how he scores at his size and the mix of moves, he's not really dependent on the spin for anybody who's watching and doesn't watch Raptors games. That's not really how he scores. He can do it. People sit yeah. on it. He has counters. People haven't really seen a guy like him before. So it's tough for them to like say, this is good because everyone registers elite or great through comparison with basketball fans for some reason. And also he had the worst shooting slump of his career since 2018-19. I think he was like five for 52 from downtown. A crazy, crazy stretch of three. The thing that got lost in that, though, was that he's scoring almost 60% on two-point field goals. And he doesn't get easy, easy looks. He has to create a lot of them. He has massive, massive gravity within the arc to drag and pull doubles, to drag and pull help. He's an excellent decision maker against compromised defenses. It's almost impossible to get him to kill his dribble with a stunt. He'll keep it alive. He'll keep pressing his matchup while dragging doubles deeper. He is, he's not hardened in that he's an offense unto himself, but he's a piece of an offense unto himself. Throw him the ball, you're getting above average points per possession. And to start the season, this was something I wrote about and something that Lewis Satsman wrote about. He was through the first like 25 games, even better as far as efficiency with passing and scoring than Nikola Jokic out of the post. He was the NBA on massive volume, the NBA's most efficient post player. He has been a wizard inside the two points. So, you know, people can talk about consistency. People can talk about all that kind of stuff. The outside shot was weird for a long time, but he was always consistent in that he pressures defenses. He pushes them past the breaking point and he scores the hell out of the ball. Those things are super, super important. Yeah. If the three-point jump shot is no longer at like 20%, it's actually at like he's shooting the same percentage as Julius Randle right now. If it gets to like 30 to 32%, and he's also a guy who's scoring like 58% and up inside the arc, he get like he draws fouls, he draws doubles, he's definitely not a selfish player. He has a ton of utility in like switching schemes. He has a ton of utility to like guard down if he's on another team there's just a lot of utility there and to the rj thing earlier a coach doesn't look at a player and come in and say what can't this guy do a coach sees a player and says what can this guy do what does this allow me to build an offense around and he's like siakam has been nuts lately like really quietly just goes into every game scores the hell out of the ball hardly misses shots and that's what he's been doing and pretty quietly. Given that Tim Bontemps reported that they are going to look to move Scotty, which by the way, like is in 
something of a contrast to what Woj reported uh, a couple of days ago, where Woj went on TV and said that like they're going to give this playing group a little bit of runway and see what it looks like, and certainly continue to like assess deals on Siakam. That sounds basically that's a paraphrase of Woj, but that sounds basically like what he said, right, Samson? Yeah, that's that. That was my interpretation of it mostly. So interesting that like conflicting reports there in some respect, but around the Raptors, no way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's pretty wild how that works. Uh, the place that stands out for me with Siakam, if he goes somewhere is Indiana, like he would be a pure fucking ass kicker in Indiana in a space where you have Miles Turner spacing the floor from three, like in the corner and in pick and pops. You surround him with all sorts of shooters. You surround him with Tyrese Halliburton at guard who can pull defenders out with his pull up shooting. I think they are a like lethal team if they were to get Siakam. Like they, they are a like they, they're fucking impossible to stop on offense now. Like they then become basically impossible to stop in half court offense in addition to like their incredible transition capability as That's well. Uh, Siakam to me is like the guy that Indiana should be chasing. I always thought he made more sense for them than Ananobi. Frankly, I get why they wanted Ananobi because of the defensive thing. Like they thought, okay, like we need to be like a much better defense. Ananobi is a better defender than Siakam, but the the two-way aspect of what Siakam brings, like he's always been the one to me where I'm like, if I'm Indiana, that's the guy that I want. I think Indiana, as far as like in the playoffs, or as far as I should say, the regular season with OG Ananobi, OG makes in Indiana like a much better regular season formulaic team. Yeah. Pascal is really, really interesting in that you look at how he plays his own self-creation against pressure. He's seen it a lot. Like, don't get it twisted. This is the guy, not a lot of people remember it. Time is winding down. He hit the last shot of the 2019 NBA Finals on an ISO against Raymond Green in the last minute of the game. Like, against pressure, he can he can score. Against a lot of different coverages, he can score. If, the, if teams want to overload on Tyrese Halliburton, change the pace and complexion of a playoff game. Just like, okay, they want to pressure everything above the break, throw it down to Pascal Siakam. Now you're what, like a three on two below the break. And if you try and catch up, Tyrese Halberton can move to the same side as Pascal Siakam. If you want to help one pass away, are you nuts? It's just like, it, it would make their offense really crazy. And I think it would make it a lot more diverse. And if Siakam is willing to, you know, provide that same level of pep defensively and is also a guy who you're not worried about him shooting 20% from three, that was the worst it's ever been for him. But you're like, okay, it gets as bad as like 27% and it can get as good as like 40% over a stretch. It's like, and you, and you try and limit it to corner threes. There's a lot of stuff moving in the right way that like he's, he's a really great player and Indiana, if they want to take a shot at it, I think it makes their team like diverse in a unique way. I think it makes them like better for a playoff context. 
And I don't know how they value like that potential upside versus the cost going out the door, but it would be really interesting. Totally. And if I'm Indiana, Siakam has been very upfront to me. It feels like at least you're around him, you know, semi-regularly in media stuff, but it seems like to me, he wants to control his next situation. Like that, that's the number one thing I've taken away. Like he said that, like he, you know, didn't want to be moved. He said he won't sign an extension elsewhere, et cetera, et cetera. If I'm Indiana, I feel like I am probably one of the few teams that would be in a very positive, strong position to be able to convince him to stay because I am putting him next to a guy in Tyrese Halliburton and putting him in a situation next to Miles Turner in the front court, surrounded by shooters that particularly accentuate his skill set. I think I would actually be willing to give up real value. That's the issue with Siakam here. The team that moves for him has to be willing to give up real value. If I'm Sacramento, much as I love the fit of him in Sacramento, I always have in the back of my mind, I'm worried is, is he going to stay? Is he going to bounce? What's going to happen here when, you know, push comes to shove, right? And you can say that they have Demonis Sabonis. They have De'Aaron Fox. They have Keegan Murray. They are also very well positioned to input Siakam into interesting situations. I don't think the fit is quite as clean. Sure. With Fox and Sabonis running two-man actions constantly, like that tends to be the crux of their offense, Sacramento would really have to tangibly change what it does. I don't know that Indiana necessarily would have to change as much, I guess is my point. And that that's why, like to me, Indiana should and probably could be willing to give up a little bit more than a team like Sacramento where like, if I'm Sacramento, I'm like, yeah, sure. Like you can have Harrison Barnes. You can have Kevin Herter. Like that's how we'll match the money. I'm not, I'm definitely not giving you Keegan Murray. Um, No chance of that. Like, I mean, it would require at least two picks at that point. And is that even better than what you can get from Indiana? Like I'm not convinced of that. So there's, there's two things. I like that you said would be in a strong position to convince Pascal because my my interpretation of things right now is that if let's say Indiana had traded for Pascal on December 27th and he had been extension eligible for them, I don't think he would have signed it. I think he still would have went to free agency. He I as far as like the Pascal plus Indiana thing, the thing that makes it tough is I really do think that he would walk in there and say I'm going to be convinced I'm not doing it right now. And yeah. he would need that. Now, as we talked about the fit, the potential to like explode some numbers here, it's it's a big thing. You you could get there. I'm sure they could. And and Pascal is a guy who, you know, he's been in Toronto for so long, has echoed a lot of loyalty to Toronto. But he also is a guy who like he wants to obviously control his destiny in free agency. And I don't yeah. I don't blame him for that. Um as far as like the Raptors, what they think from it. There's a reason I pressed, you know, Masai on it at media day. Like, you know, it seems kind of odd not to offer Pascal anything 
while also saying you believe in Pascal. And the reason why I said that isn't to be like, oh, you're lying or, oh, you're dumb. It's because these guys have to say things and you want to like search for the inaccuracies that reveal something. Why wasn't Pascal getting it? Probably not because like the Raptors don't believe in him, but probably because they've been trying to trade him for years and years and extending him at that point in time would have complicated the ongoing trade talks that were happening at the time, their ability to move him at that point. And so that's like, that's what it is. That's the, that's the tough thing. There's a lot of um, competing conceptions about what he'll do, where he'll go. And to the, your point at the very start of this, like even the reporting is a mixed bag on this. It's not consistent. Yeah. And to me, like you said, the word like inaccuracies, like it's not even inaccuracies to me. It's like logical inconsistencies maybe is like a better way to put it in terms of like the way that you think about these things when trying to build a team, right? Like you're trying to understand because look like almost any time when you're building a team and look, I haven't done this, but I literally talk to them is my job like every day, right? You're going to be inconsistent on something like you can have an overarching philosophy of what you want to do, how you want to build everything like that. But when you're dealing with an art form in evaluation that has the input of like science, which we can call analytics, but also so many other factors, like what he looks like on the court, um, how he plays, what you think his upside is, his off-court habits, his competitiveness, his tendencies, the shit's an art. It's not a science, point blank you're always going to have something of an inconsistency when trying to build a roster, trying to build a team, whatever. And I like the way you put it in terms of that. You weren't trying to be like, this is like wrong. This is this, this is that. Like I wasn't trying to, you know, be like a dickhead to Masai about how he's handling Pascal Siakam. I think that asking the question that way worked toward trying to reveal something interesting uh, within the way that Masai thinks about team building, which is important. And I think that that's something I just wanted to say. Like, I think that's an important piece of it uh, in terms of when asking questions at press conferences, which frankly, again, like I don't do that often. Um, I don't like if I'm going to, I'm going to go find it in my weird, you know, underground basketball this way. (laughs) If I want an answer on something, um, Teams that make sense for Siakam, I think that certainly Indiana, I think certainly Sacramento. I saw Detroit get in the mix today. I think it was Jake Fisher that said that. I mean, look, like they need a four. Um, Please don't send. There's no, I I cannot envision a world where Pascal would be like, I'm going to stay in Detroit. Right? Like. I think that dude wants to win as much as anything. And like, they might win. Like, I'm not saying that Detroit's fucked forever, but like, I think it's going to be hard to convince him to stay. Maybe is the way to put it. I Detroit to me is like nuts, man. If he, and (laughs) anything is possible, anything is possible, of course. But when I saw that, I was like, what, why, what is the motive? I'm not sure I see the motive. For who, for what? 
I don't see the motivation from Detroit's point of view. I don't see the motivation from the Raptors' point of view. I don't see the motivation from Siakam's point of view. I don't know how to talk myself into that. So, like, here's the thing. Everything that we've heard about Siakam is he's going to go to free agency. Just fucking sign him in free agency. Like, I get that you might want the bird rights, and you think that the bird rights give you a better chance maybe to sign him because you can sign him to a five-year deal as opposed to a four-year deal. You can give him bigger raises, et cetera, et cetera. But, like, not at the expense of giving up real value. And to get Siakam, like, it starts and ends with Ivy for me. Like, if I am getting Pascal Siakam, you need to – or if I'm, you're, if I'm trading you Pascal Siakam – you need to give me Jaden Ivy. Point the Raptors right. probably are like, they're like Ivy plus, plus. plus. No, a hundred percent. Like it's Ivy and other things. Like, I think they, like, they, I think Detroit would, Ivy would go, but I still don't, I don't know if the Raptors view that as like as compelling as what they're going to try and get elsewhere. You know? Yeah. It's insane. It's absolutely insane. Uh, I'm trying to think other teams that make sense uh people obviously atlanta has been a name that's been brought up for weeks upon weeks originally i was thinking like a Dejounte murray kind of deal would make sense like those two being kind of aligned but i i don't now it was, that it was my understanding like, that Dejounte murray <laughs> this now i can't like confirm this or anything but it was my understanding that the talks were happening and DeJounte, they're like, DeJounte, we'll send you to Toronto. And he's like, no, let me sign an extension instead. You know, oh, my like, God. <laughs> you know, like, I, I don't think yeah. DeJounte wanted Toronto at all. Uh, which some guys don't. Uh, if it's not DeJounte, then it'd be like Bogdan Bogdanovich, uh, DeAndre Hunter kind of thing. If I'm, again, if I'm Toronto, I need Jalen Johnson in a deal like that, probably. And I don't know how great of a fit Jalen Johnson is with what Toronto is building either. So I don't, even, I don't even know if they'd give it. Yeah, I don't know if they would give it. Like, it doesn't make a ton of sense. Atlanta doesn't make a crazy amount of sense to me, especially given that they're not very good right and now. They're, yeah, as they're well. messy. That's like, there's there's a couple teams where you're like, they're moving in a positive direction and you see Pascal as like a positive addition. And then there's yeah. some teams that you're like, this shit is so messy, like Warriors or Atlanta. And you're like, can Pascal save it? And I'm sure you could talk yourself more so into Pascal can help save the Warriors this season than Pascal could help save the Hawks. But you're still like, Pascal isn't a savior. He's like very beneficial to a team, obviously. But like the, the savior stuff, ah, I don't know. Here's a sneaky one that I kind of thought about. Houston? Like if Houston like was just like, we want to win now they have all the dudes like that you could go for. Um, like if that, like Pascal would be a really interesting fit. I think next to Shingun in some ways I wouldn't do this. Like to be clear, like I, if I was Houston, I would look for something different, but I don't know, like not, not implausible. Well, how do you to think me? next to that point guard there? Have they played together before? Is that something that might work? That would be fun. I'm here for it. Uh, there's one team I want to finish with. I'm just trying to like run through. I had a couple people bring up Oklahoma City to me. Like, imagine if Oklahoma City traded for Siakam. I mean, that would make sense in a lot of ways. Like a transition downhill team that they switch could use like 
you know, switches a decent amount. Uh, you know, could use another like high end, like offensive creator in some respect. Like they, they don't need it, but imagine being able to run like one, four ball screens with Shea and Pascal and then Chet's on the weak side. Uh, and then you have like fucking Isaiah Joe in the corner or some shit. And like you have J dub in the other corner. It's just like, okay, like this is fucking unstoppable. Like how do we manage this? Uh, Siakam would make a lot of sense to me in Oklahoma city. I, again, I don't think Oklahoma city is going to make like some superstar style move. I, I would, if that... I were them, not, maybe not Pascal, but like Lowry, God, yeah. I'd be going for marketing. If I was OKC, I don't know if I would, it doesn't matter. Marketing. I still don't think like uh, the jazz are moving marketing for what it's worth, but, um, I will say like Toronto, there were a lot of, there was a lot of Josh Giddy smoke around Toronto when he was in the draft. Uh, I don't know if recent circumstances regarding Josh Giddy like changes that I would hope that it does a little bit, frankly. Uh, I'm just saying though, like that's, that's something I got a decent amount of pre-draft in 20, what was that? 2021. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think that hit. that would. Yeah, but like Gideon quickly is like kind of interesting, but he doesn't make sense next to Scotty, so it doesn't matter. I don't think that that. Yeah, I hate that man. I like I I get it from the point of view of like Giddy does interesting things. There's like a unique. He's all elbows and knees when he drives. Somehow he gets to places on the floor, but there's just like a lot of stuff working against him. And also like why why until things are resolved regarding like his off, like what happened between him and that 15 year old girl when he was 19. It's like, why would you put your hand in the, just why? Why? No, I agree. I agree. Uh, Final couple of teams I think are worth bringing up. I I don't know. I mean, we could bring up the Knicks, but like, I don't think they're making another trade again. That'd be bizarre. That'd be nuts. That'd be so weird to see that. I guess Brooklyn, Brooklyn's on the lookout for a star always. I don't think they have the necessary like young players to do it. I I, I cannot see Masai being like Cam Thomas, come on down. That seems like a, like the antithesis of a uh, Masai Ujiri move, right? If people were worried about selfishness around Fred Van Vliet and then Dennis Schroeder as far as it pertains to Scotty's growth, uh, Cam Thomas, I imagine, would be something. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. yeah. The last team I want to bring up is, and the reason I wanted to finish with this team, is the team we started with, yeah. the Golden State Warriors. Uh, this is a thing I've kind of talked about a decent amount on this show. Like if I was... The Warriors, I would be somewhat interested in this, but ultimately it would be hard for me to actually do it unless I felt like I was like moving on from Draymond Green in some respect, because ultimately if you're the Warriors, your end goal is to win the title if you're making a Pascal Siakam move. Certainly. Against the West, the team you have to go through is Denver. Can you compete against Denver needing to have Kevon Looney on the court? Like much as I love Draymond, much as I love Pascal, I don't think either of those dudes can deal with Jokic in like a one-on-one matchup. Like Draymond's a little bit too short. 
Pascal is, you know, strong as he is, like he's not strong enough to deal with Jokic just like anchoring and moving him around and playing as physically as he does. You kind of can't play Looney, Draymond, Siakam all on the court at once together and make it work offensively at a level high enough to beat Denver because Denver is still going to score on you. I like it. I don't like, I like them getting Siakam in some respect. Cause like, if you think about Siakam, it fits a lot of what golden state likes to do. Like he moves the ball. He makes good decisions on his drives. He's like kind of super powered Kuminga in the same way that we talked about Kuminga, uh, adding things to golden state early in this podcast. It just doesn't make sense unless they're not going to continue down the road with Draymond. Uh, Yeah, I think that's the motivation is like, because obviously they have to try and win this year if they're making that trade. Uh, I think best case scenario, if they do make that trade, is that, you know, Pascal comes, they beat teams that aren't Denver, and like the proof of concept is elite and works really well, and Pascal stays in the Bay Area. And then they work to dis, like, put Draymond elsewhere, trade, shake up the front court even further, following that proof of concept with Curry as the the leading star, obviously, where Siakam fits tremendously. And then, you know, that's kind of like how it ends up. That's the optimist look. But even the optimist look probably doesn't include a championship, you know? So, tough. Yeah. If they would find, like, if they would decide, like, look, we don't want to be on the Draymond deal anymore. Like, we want to move on. I don't think there's actually like a more perfect move that they could do than go get Pascal Siakam and like use Moses Moody, Brandon Pajemski, like whatever you want to do to go get him. Right. Like that makes all the sense in the world to me. But if you're keeping Draymond and you're keeping these core three guys, I don't think it makes any sense at all. Frankly, Draymond trades are like a totally different conversation that I don't really want to get into, (laughs) but that's a tough one. Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, but to me, that that's what that would signal, I guess, is I wonder if they move for Pascal, would that then be a corresponding Draymond move? Um, the thing that very clearly makes the most sense here is Indiana. Out of all of the things we've talked about, Indiana is the cleanest. It's the sharpest. Like, it... it they have the assets. They have Jairus Walker. They have Ben Matherin. They have uh, Aaron Neesmith, who, even though he's poison-pilled, it's not that bad of a number, if I remember correctly, to where they will be able to figure it out. Can I tell um, you the guy that the Raptors, above all else? Andrew Nemhard, I would imagine, right? That's the guy. Yeah, they, they, they would probably want Nemhard as the secondary prospect. Like uh, To me, a deal there that makes sense is like, one of Walker Matherin to me, it would be Walker, but like, I would understand if they had worries about Walker Barnes in the same way that like you would have worries about Siakam Barnes. One of those two Nemhard and one or two picks like whatever, whatever you want to do like a unprotected pick this year. And, you know, maybe a somewhat protected pick into the future. 
that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. We'll see. Not both. I mean, like I've seen I've seen people speculate like both Jairus Walker and Ben Matherin or uh a lot. And I'm just like, I think that you do like one of those two. I think you do Nemhard, and I think you do it'd probably have to be Buddy Healed, I guess would be involved as well. Contract wise, yeah. Yeah, and they'd probably ship Buddy to like a third team somewhere, you would think. Maybe not. Buddy could actually shoot and like he would help them as a shooter, but um it'd depend on do they see themselves competing, contending, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the biggest deal uh, to me is that if yeah. Indiana makes a big move, everyone can talk to Caitlin Cooper about it and everyone will get smarter because like the Pacers are in the news and you get to hear I, her talk about basketball. I just need to get Caitlin on the podcast again. That's probably going to be something I do. If not this week, then next week. Um, yeah, I should probably just do that. Caitlin's the best. Um yeah, like my my take on this, like just kind of looking through, I'm going to actually like do numbers real quick and that'll be the last thing we do here. The the deal that makes the most sense for me on Pascal on Pascal is Indiana. Uh you could do Indiana. I'm going to pull up the trade machine as soon as I actually uh figure this out. Enhance. That's literally what I'm doing. Enhance, enhance. Uh okay, so we've got this up. Let's enlarge this, not just enhance, enlarge. Uh, can people see that? I hope so. I can okay. see it, so I hope it's working, yeah. Uh, let's do Jairus Walker, because I think that makes a little bit more sense. Let's send Siakam to the Pacers, and we need to get the money right. So be buddy healed. Give me Nemby. We need Nemhard. You have to throw Nemhard in. Did I accomplish that? No. Okay. Uh, so we got Nemhard there. We throw in. It's not there money-wise, I don't think, right? Let's try this. Failed. That's what I thought. Let's adjust. And we'll throw in TJ McConnell for good measure. What would it be, TJ or OB? Probably TJ, th- right? It'd be one of the two, I would think. Probably TJ, because I think the Raptors would have to send somebody back. And what, you just send back, like, Garrett Temple or something like that, maybe? And that gets the money close enough. Like, it'd be some structure like that with picks. Like, And then you send maybe Buddy to Orlando. Oh, he'd be good there. Yeah, it's like a perfect idea. Like you send Buddy to Orlando. Also, that's kind of a funny you... thing. Um, in chat, Phoenix Plays E says, no, don't trade Garrett. Garrett, uh, he donated a bunch of money to the Ontario Teachers Union. So like he's a pro-labor king, so we might have to protect <laughs> Protect Garrett Temple at all costs. Seriously, yeah. like people around the league, and I want to uh, say this real quick, people around the league, adore garrett temple like truly truly love him as a human being um i think i've only like briefly met him like got like no real impression but like he's he seemed like a nice guy when i talked to him very very briefly um like many like many years ago but yeah no like people around the league will uh like bend over backwards talking about how good of a guy Garrett Temple is. 
Um, Stevie brings up as well in the chat that the Raptors, they created a $4 million trade exception in the Knicks trade as well. Yeah. They have a, yeah. Yeah. That's 4.4 mil. Doesn't, doesn't total. I mean, like you could bring Nemhard into the trade exception, like as piece, as a piece of this deal and what you could send like, so what they're at incoming, they would need to take on like, honestly, like you take on the Fultz money potentially with the Raptors. Fultz is a free agent at the end of the Fultz year. Is so great, man. I love Markel Fultz. And, and this is me saying this, like as somebody who like is, is Markel coming back this year is kind of my question with them right now. Like I, I'm assuming he is, um, I'm assuming he's coming back relatively soon. Like, do they want to fuck up the mojo they have with their backcourt with Suggs and then they have Anthony Black? Like, it seems like Markel is not long for Orlando, I guess is why. You know, if you think Buddy makes more sense for them, you could do like Fultz in a second or something. So we'll send a 2024 second to the Raptors. It's a real hodgepodge. I've never, I've never been one to like, uh, uh, to build trades. So, yeah. I've actually never used the trade machine, I don't think. So, like, the the machinations. There's a lot of stuff going on here. Wow. There's, like, a lot of plugins. So, what? And then we do, like, I don't know. Let's let's just do one pick, maybe. Let's do one unprotected pick. So, now, that's, that's what we're looking at. Like, does something like this make sense to you? Okay. I usually look at it from the point of view of, like, value or perceived value. And Indiana gets Pascal and Garrett Temple. Indiana gives away TJ, Jarris, Nemhard, a first-round pick, and Buddy Heald. I'm sure there's, like, Indiana fans that would feel that's quite steep, to be quite honest. And I don't know Probably. if I can – I don't know if I can speak from the Magic's point of view, but – I think the Magic probably are okay with that from that point of view. And I think the Raptors say yes to that deal. So Indiana's probably the one that holds it up based on outgoing value, if I had to guess. Yeah, I think that's probably right if you made me bet. I think that makes a lot of sense for the Raptors. I think it makes some sense for the Magic. I don't know how much sense it makes for Indiana. That's tough. It's a lot, yeah. Okay. Samson for breaks. Longer than I wanted to. Samson. <laughs> uh, Samson, tell the people where they can find their work. Tell the people what's going on. Uh, if you like me or like me during this, uh, go to raptorsofpublic.com and you can subscribe there if you have the means for like the best Raptors stuff. Uh, if you're interested... And uh, if you just like watching like stuff on YouTube, like you are now, just type in Raptors Republic. A lot of my uh, audio work is up there. My video work is up there. And uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at S-A-M-F-O-L-K-K, just Sam Folk. So that's all the good stuff. And thank you, Sam, for having me on. I always appreciate it. Samson is the best uh, in the business covering the Toronto Raptors. I love him. I think he is fantastic. I would suggest everybody go follow Raptors Republic on YouTube. Go follow Samson's work over on Twitter. Uh, like I said, like he does great in-person stuff, as we talked about with the Maasai press conference. He does great analysis stuff. He does it all. He is capable uh, of just providing fantastic content. That's why he comes on the show. 
This has been the Game Theory Podcast. We'll be back on Monday, I believe. I think that's when Bryce is good to record. We'll talk about that at some point and figure it out. I will let you know. Uh, Next week, I will probably do rookie rankings. Uh, I'm in the middle of draft guide stuff right now uh, already. We're at that season where I am. uh, I have already like done a good portion of like Alex Sars, Rob Dillingham's, Reed Shepard's like we're we're rolling a little bit here already with this thing because I'm trying to be further ahead so I don't have to write 40 of these things in April like what happened last season. So keep it locked here. Keep it locked to the athletic uh, where all of my writing goes. Until next time, we'll talk soon.